Now, on Pop Culture Confidential, writer and TV critic Alan Sepinwall on his new book, Breaking Bad 101, a complete guide to one of American television's most important shows. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. So I'm really happy to talk to Alan Sepinwall today, TV critic at Uproxx. He is a TV writer that I've read and followed a lot through the years. His early book called The Revolution Was Televised is a real favorite of mine. And he also co-authored TV the Book with another great critic, Matt Zoller-Seitz, who's been a guest here on Pop Culture Confidential a few times. Seppenwall's latest book is Breaking Bad 101, The Complete Critical Companion, and it is a complete guide covering episode by episode of the series. Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad starring Brian Cranston was a phenomenon. It challenged our morals, tested our limits, and just reinvented the TV narrative in so many ways. Alan Seppenwall, thank you so much for talking to me. It's my pleasure. And I really, I have to mention, because I so love the illustrations by Max Dalton, I want the listeners to check those out, because I think they're so great. I I got to see them as they were coming in, and it, I was always delighted at the particular image he had chosen to register the end of a chapter. And we, when we get to the episode with Tortuga's head on the turtle, I yes. just I, apl- I applauded the drawing, which is not <laughs> something I usually do. It, they're fantastic. I mean, in the text as well. So yeah, but um, could you describe a little bit the television landscape when Breaking Bad premiered around ten years ago? What 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 was what was on and what was happening in TV then? Well, you have to think about this. The Sopranos had ended about a year before. Mad Men had debuted about six months before. So we were sort of in this transitional period from the time at the start of the century when you had Sopranos and The Wire and Deadwood and Six Feet Under and a bunch of these HBO shows that helped create the era that we're in now and the era that Breaking Bad arrived in. But when Sopranos went off the air and The Wire was about to end, it seemed like Maybe that era had been a fluke, you know, could, was this sustainable or was this the Wild West for five minutes and we were, things were going to return to normal. <laughs> and then with this one-two punch of first Mad Men and then Breaking Bad, both on AMC, everyone realized, oh wait, no, this is going to keep going. And so you went from a time when there were maybe half a dozen of show, shows like this to now when there's literally more shows of this aspiration and sometimes of this quality then I have time to watch, and it's my only job to watch television. What were your thoughts when you first got the pilot for Breaking Bad? What were your thoughts on the show? It's it's a funny thing to say, given that I just wrote a book about it. I didn't really like Breaking Bad when it debuted. Mm-hmm. Um, I had very mixed feelings about it. I thought the pilot was very good and obviously beautifully shot by Vince Gilligan and John Toll, the director of photography. And I loved Brian Cranston, and I thought he was giving a great performance. But the the pacing of the show was so different from anything I was used to that it really threw me. And I remember AMC sent not only the pilot, but the next two episodes, which, if you remember, are almost entirely about disposing of corpses. Right, right. And I watched those and I thought, wait, what is is going on here? Who would do this? When are we going to get back to the story, which is, you know, suburban man decides to deal drugs, and why are we devoting two hours to this? What is going on? I don't understand any of this. And it basically took until the show came back a year later 
for me to recognize, oh, wait, no, that's the point, the slow pace. You've got to see every little detail on Walter White's journey from being a seeming good guy to the biggest monster in TV history. And so you've got to watch all of that. And that was part of the show's genius. And I just, it took me a while to catch on to it. Tell me why you're doing this. Seriously. Why do you do it? Money? Mainly? There you go. Nah, come on. Man, some straight like you, giant stick up his ass, all of a sudden at age, what, 60, he's just going to break bad? I'm 50. It's weird, is all, okay? It, it doesn't compute. Listen, if you've gone crazy or something, I mean, if you've, if you, if you've gone crazy or depressed, I'm, I'm just saying, that, that's something I need to know about, okay? I mean, that, that affects me. I am awake. <laughs> what? By the RV. So it was really season two, the moment that changed for you. Yeah, I remember putting it on and the show had been away for a while. And it's not even that the season two premiere is appreciably better than anything they were doing the year before. It's just a pretty straight up continuation of what had happened at the end of season one when the season got cut off by the Writers Guild strike. But I just I guess I had gotten used to the show by then. And so, so it was less that the show was different than that I was different. Right, right. There are so many th interesting things that the show has to say sort of about the state of America, the American male, even, even the healthcare system. It, it's possibly even more relevant now than it was then, um, would you say? No, definitely. And, and Vince Gilligan and I have talked about this a while over the years, and, and he never intended for it to be much of a sociopolitical commentary, but it really is. The show was made right before the housing bubble burst right. and the and the economy cratered, but it debuted after. And so it really felt, uh, or it debuted around the same time, and it really felt like the first recession-era show because here's this man who has been told, you know, you do things the right way and everything will work out, and suddenly the safety net has been ripped out from under him and his lousy uh, health insurance through his job will not pay for the cancer treatments he needs. And so he decides to do this insane, awful, despicable thing out of what initially seemed like good reasons and are eventually revealed not to be. But when you start out, it's definitely, I'm trying to come up with money to keep myself alive and to provide for my family after I'm gone. And, you know, wouldn't you do, wouldn't you do anything for the sake of your own family in the same way in these crazy times in which we live. It, it's interesting, though, because a lot of the fans, I mean, he he does sort of go from being what you say of, of sort of a hero. He, he wants to provide for his family, even though he does it in the wrong way. But he does sort of end up saying, I enjoy this. <laughs> I enjoy yes. doing the evil thing. But a lot of the, that there's sort of a discussion with fans still if if he is good or he is bad, which is sort of interesting. I did, uh, for my last book, TV the Book, I was doing a, a, an appearance at a bookstore and we were taking questions and one woman stands up and says, you know, I really prefer, I wish you had ranked Breaking Bad ahead of The Sopranos on our list of the best hundred shows of all time because I liked it better because Walter White was ultimately a good guy who was doing <laughs> it for his family. And and me and my co-author, Matt Zeller, sites looked at each other and then we looked at her and we said... Were you watching the show in the very last episode? He comes right out and says, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. And I felt I was alive. Right. And the, even when the text comes right out and tells people that, it's first impressions are hard to shake. And also when you watch a show about somebody and you spend years or hours watching that show, it becomes very difficult not to see their point of view 
and to let go of that initial impression of him. And so there were people throughout the run of the show, people now who will still argue for Walter White as a sympathetic character. And I understand why it happens, but it's also uh, very fascinating and strange to me. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? Do you know how much I make a year? I mean, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Do you know what would happen if I suddenly decided to stop going into work? A business big enough that it could be listed on the NASDAQ goes belly up. Disappears. It ceases to exist without me. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to. So let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. But, I mean, isn't that type of anti-male hero throughout film and TV history doesn't really have to be sympathetic if he's getting revenge for some sort of reason that people think is is fine, if you know what I mean. I mean, there's a lot of people we wonder why we're calling them heroes. <laughs> but then you get somebody like Tony Soprano, who the Breaking Bad would not exist without the Sopranos. And that's a case there's really no defending anything he does. Yes, he's providing for his family, but he's really, you know, in, in many ways far worse than Walter White is. And, like, there, there's no noble purpose at any point. It's just a thing he does, and he uses people, and he destroys people. And with that show, I witnessed the very same thing in terms of the audience empathizing with him and sympathizing with him and turning against anyone who was against him. And I would have arguments <laughs> sometimes, you know, at, at bars with people who would bring it up and say, you know, oh, Christopher's a nice boy. And they had just aired an episode where he murdered a waiter because the waiter complained about his tip. Mm -hmm. And it's just that's... Again, the allure of the protagonist is a very hard thing to shake, regardless of the context of right, it. Right. But I mean, people love a good mafia character who loves his family and has nice traditions and food. And there's something else in there. <laughs> that's that's fair, although we could quibble over exactly how much Tony loved his family, that's given true. how often he was stepping out on his wife. That's true. But he, he, he loves his mistress, right? At the point. <laughs> yeah. For a little bit, anyway. Anyway, getting back to to the book, most of um, most of us sort of knew of Brian Cranston as this comic genius of Malcolm in the Middle. So this casting, I guess, was either genius or a huge risk. What would you say about the casting of Brian Cranston as this anti-hero evil we're talking about? What's what's funny, and I don't really get into it in the book, but AMC, they wanted a name. They went after, I believe, Matthew Broderick and John Cusack. Oh, wow. That would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah, because, again, they sort of wanted someone who the audience knew and liked. So it would be harder to go along the, the way. And Cranston is the same way because Malcolm in the Middle, for a while, was a really big hit. and He's the, the hapless but lovable dad, Hal. And he had done some drama stuff, and that's why he got cast in the first place, because he did an X-Files episode that Vince Gilligan wrote, uh, mm -hmm. and I'd seen him in some other things, but certainly nobody was prepared for this other than maybe Vince Gilligan. So to that degree, it's a risk, but I think it also worked in a way because you, he brings with him this sitcom dad baggage, and you're watching the show, and it, parts of it are very funny, especially the interplay with Walt and Jesse early on. Uh, and so it it's part of the way in which the show lures you in because you you're thinking of him in part as Hal from Malcolm in the Middle, who just has to go and cook crystal meth now. And <laughs> so it kind of sneaks up on you. Oh, wait a minute. No, he's very, he's really bad. 
and maybe he has always been bad, and it just took the cancer coming out for him to have an outlet for it. Right, right. That's true. That's sort of the genius of it, that you're in that sitcom world, and all of a sudden, no, no, this is weird. <laughs> and I, and I, have, I have arguments sometimes with other writers, you know, both about television and people who write for television, about was Walt always bad, or did he break bad? And one of them says, just look at, like, the flashback to when he and Skyler go to look at the house for the first time. It's very clear that that's Heisenberg already. It's just his context didn't allow for it yet. Right, right, right. So they knew that. Um, talk a little bit about Vince Gilligan. What What is sort of his genius um, as a showrunner? Well, it's a few things. One, Vince is a great writer, and that's obviously the most important job of most TV showrunners because it's a, a writer's-driven medium. And he just comes up with really creative ideas and ways to tell because everything about Breaking Bad is a familiar story in one way or another, but the way in which they told it was novel. And a lot of that is that pacing that I talked about before. Just it moves so slowly that every moment winds up having this much bigger weight, and that was Gilligan's idea. But what's really interesting to me is I think he might be a better director than he is a writer. Oh, really? uh, just the work he does in that pilot that all these other directors who came after, some great directors like Ryan Johnson, who's doing the new Star Wars movie, and Michelle McLaren and, and a bunch of others, they were, they were all building on the template that Gillian had set. And a lot of the show's very best episodes, like Face Off, he directed. And they're just their master classes in suspense, in composition, in pacing, in tone. And you know, some of that is obviously coming from the script, but a lot of that is his work with the actors and his sense of where to put the camera and where to cut. Because yeah, visually, it was also incredibly stunning. No, it definitely is. And the tradition in TV was TV, you know, I, I one, another writer friend of mine makes fun of me for this phrase because I phrased it wrong, but I once said, TV's not a visual medium. And what I meant by that is, for the longest time in TV, the tradition was, you got to make it fast, you got to make it cheap. There is no time to get cute with the visuals. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, master shot, two shot, two shot, close up, close up, two shot, master shot, goodbye. The, you know, just the, the most economical, simplest way to get across the information in a particular scene. And some shows had tried to do more than that, including The X-Files, including Twin Peaks and Miami Vice, but for the most part, not. And Vince Gilligan comes along for Breaking Bad and he says, no, I want the pictures to tell the story at least as much as any of the words I write. And so every episode of the show has at least one or two or you know five or six absolutely gorgeous shots that look like nothing you've seen before and that bring the story to life in a way beyond just what Cranston and Aaron Paul and everybody else are doing. Right, right. Now, who would you say has, has really, of the shows that have come on after Breaking Bad, can you see has taken a lot of things from it? Um, I mean, there's a lot of Breaking Bad imitators. You know, there's a lot of, you know white male anti-heroes, you know, I'm I'm a guy just like you, but I'm forced to do a bad, bad thing. Most of those have been pretty lame. Netflix had a show this summer called Ozark with Jason Bateman right. that I, I didn't think was very good at all, but I heard from a lot of people who said, look, I've just been looking for a show like this. I miss Breaking Bad. I want a Breaking Bad type show, so I'm going to watch this because it's a good enough approximation. And so a lot of these shows, they get they take the wrong lessons from it. They take the, oh, let's just have a troubled anti-hero who, you know, doesn't get along with his wife and let's tell the story really slowly, but not with the nuance that Breaking Bad did that made the slowness mm -hmm. interesting. So you just have a lot of these shows that take forever to get the, to the point, but aren't good along the way. Whereas if you go back and you watch 
those two corpse disposal episodes of Breaking Bad, they're really fantastic hours of television. Right, right. Um, lastly, I'd like, your book is really recaps of every single episode. You're, I have to say, as, an, as a critic, you're one of the real masters of recapping. So thank you so much <laughs> thank, of that. Thank um, you. But I thought maybe if we could talk about, of course, the one episode, Ozymandias, that's hailed as one of the best episodes um, in TV ever, really. Um, could you say why? Sure. Well, first, I have to tell the story of me, my original recap of that episode, which was the morning before it aired, my appendix burst. Oh, my I God. Was, yes, I, <laughs> yes. I'd been feeling, I hadn't been feeling well. My mother-in-law said, you should go. She was staying with us. Go to the emergency room. I'm worried about you. I went to the emergency room. They said, oh, we, you know, we think you have appendicitis. It's going to have to come out. And it took them so long to get me into surgery that my appendix ruptured. In the hospital, I had a really oh. terrible infection. I was in the hospital for two weeks. And so that night, as the greatest episode of dramatic television ever airs, I'm in a hospital bed with IVs in both arms, one with painkillers, one with hardcore IV antibiotics to try to, like, beat down this infection. And my wife, my mother, and my stepfather are all sitting there with me. They've brought me my laptop so I can attempt to watch... <laughs> and recap an episode of television. They're all looking at me like I'm a lunatic, which I guess I was. And the very back of the book features the thing I wrote that night, which is largely incoherent. Right. And I went back and I wrote a new one that's in the in the proper part of the book. Right. But I remember watching this, so I'm, I'm high on Both all these Both excellent meds. reads. Yes. I'm high on all these meds. I've nearly died. Um, you know, they they don't know what quite what's wrong with me. And I'm watching this episode where all of the worst possible things you could imagine happening to people on Breaking Bad all happen. Right. And it was it was this weirdly enhanced experience of, uh, this is the right frame of mind to be watching this show in, because I feel near death, and I also feel like I don't believe any of what's happening is happening to me or to Hank or Jesse or Skyler or anybody else. But it's just, it's in terms of the episode itself, it's a masterpiece because it's it's the climax of the show. In many ways, I think the show probably should have ended with it. Uh -huh. But it just it, there's this moment when Walt and Skyler have fought in the the kitchen in the living room of their house, and you know Walter Jr. has jumped in the way, and Walt is standing there staring at his wife and son who look terrified of him, and he screams, "What the hell is wrong with you? We're a family!" And then he looks at them again, and he sees how scared they are of him. Mm -hmm. And he pauses and he says very quietly, we're a family. What the hell is wrong with you? We're a family. And that's like 60 hours of television went into that pause and went into the way he whispers that line because he's been telling himself and everybody else for all this time that he's doing this, you know, for his family. And all of a sudden he's realized that the whole thing was a lie and he's a monster and oh my God. And they took 60 hours to build to that five second pause and it's stunning. And the whole episode is great. And Ryan Johnson's direction and where Wally Beckett's script and the performances by everyone in it. It's the best episode that show ever did. I think it's probably the best episode any show has ever done. And as as many great things as there are in the next two episodes, I think if the show ends with Ozymandias, if the last thing you see is Walter White slinking off in disgrace 
you know, in the, Ed's minivan, leaving this wake of destruction behind him. Like, that is a epic tragedy. And it's still mostly a tragedy with you, what you see in the next couple of episodes. But Walt gets a little bit more redemption than maybe he should have. Right, right. No, this is that line that you were just saying is exactly what we were talking about at the top of the show. I mean, it is that whole thing about him being, um, you know, trapped in a system, but also really liking his evil state. Yeah, no, he doesn't get even there. You know, he's just watched Hank get killed. He has just turned Jesse over to the Nazis to be their slave. He's done all, or to be murdered. He's done all of these things. And he still doesn't quite understand until he sees just the sheer terror on his wife and son's face of him. Oh God, this is who I am and what I've done. Right, right. Well, th- thank you so much for for talking about your book. Do you think I could ask you, just because you're one of the um, critics that we all follow, what it should we be watching now this fall 2017? All right. So among the shows I'm really into right now is The Deuce on HBO, which is the show about the rise of the porn industry in 1970s New York from the team who did The Wire. That's wonderful. There's a show on FX called Better Things. That's sort of like a spinoff of Louie. It's co-created by Louis C.K. and Pamela Adlon, who stars in it. It's a series of short stories about what it's like to be a single mom. I love that. And just for a more conventional pick, I would go with Speechless, which is an ABC family comedy with Minnie Driver about a family where the son has special needs. And what's that like? And it's just it brings so much joy to me every single week. And sometimes you can still do old fashioned things incredibly well. That's great. Thank you so much for your time and for your book. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Alan Seppenwall. Breaking Bad 101 has just been released on Abrams Press, and you can order it pretty much everywhere. So check that out. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you have a moment, please write us a review. That really helps us out a lot. And you can also follow us on, for example, Twitter at PodPopCulture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Bory, and produced by Renee, who I would like to congratulate so much for her recent wedding. And we wish you and Albin so much love and happiness. And so from producer Renee Vikander and myself, Christina Jörling-Biro, thank you so much for listening. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.